0: This episode is brought to you by One World Empowered. Hey there, tired mama. Do you wish you could push a reset button on your energy? Like, do you want to keep up with those energizer bunnies that are running around you all day? I know, I know, I know. I feel ya. Coffee can only do so much. Well, don't you worry. I've got you covered. Now, just imagine a community of mamas who know the struggle and are working together to harness and reclaim their energy. We're talking about a true community of mamas who get it. Daily practices to jumpstart your days, accountability partners, group coaching calls to ground and recenter you throughout the 28 days. Does this sound like the exact dose of medicine you need in order to feel 100% again? If so, this program is exactly what you need. If you want to be more present with your kiddos, If you think a new routine will help you maximize your time and you enjoy having an accountability partner to help you with developing that new routine and those new habits. If you'd like to increase your patience and energy all while reducing your stress and anxiety. And if you think it would be amazing to have an understanding community of mamas who get it and are on the same path towards healing. Mama, today is the day you choose you and level up. Come join our 28-Day Energetic Reset for Moms by visiting www.OneWorldEmpowered.com slash workwithme and click the Learn More option next to the Energetic Reset program or just scroll down and click the link in my show notes below. I can't wait to meet you and witness you step into your full potential. See you there, Mama.
1: Bayard said something about that I thought was so brilliant. He was asked, do you have advice for other black gay activists? And he said, I think the most important thing I have to say is that they should try to build coalitions of people for the elimination of all injustice. Because if we wanna do away with the injustice to gays, it will not be done because we get rid of the injustice to gays. It will be done because we are forwarding the effort for the elimination of injustice to all. And we will win the rights for gays or blacks or Hispanics or women within the context of whether we are fighting for all.
0: You're listening to the Empower to Heal podcast. I'm your host, Dina T., and I'm so excited to take you on a journey through stories of everyday experts as we share the ways we've harnessed the power inside us to improve the quality of our lives and the health of our minds. We're so excited to have you here with us and hope you feel inspired and empowered to heal. Hello, you beautiful souls. I am really excited that you guys are tuning in today. We are well into Pride Month. And as you know, if you've been listening this month, I have really committed to creating a space here where we can be allies to the LGBTQIA plus community, honor stories, create education, create connection and empathy around what it's like to go through trying to figure out your sense of identity in such a foundational way in a world that sometimes isn't ready for you. And so I'm super excited today. I'm going to be having a beautiful conversation with our guest, Lee Wind, who is an author and blogger in the LGBTQIA community. And he's made it his mission to be an ally for queer youth and teens with a goal to create as much opportunity as possible for youth and teens to know that they are not alone and to understand just how prominent being queer has been throughout history. Lee's mission is a personal one, which I cannot wait to share and chat with him today about. He's actually the author of two books, the, the funded young adult novel, Queer as a $5 bill, which has been featured as a publisher's weekly indie success story in one of the publisher weekly top five independently published middle grade and young adult books of 2018. And it's the winner of the National Indie Excellence Award for Best Book for LGBTQ Children and Young Adults. And then he's just launched this past April 2021 his latest book, which is a middle grade nonfiction book titled No Way They Were Gay, Hidden Lives and Secret Loves, which has been honored as a Junior Library Guild Gold Standard Selection and has been featured in Publishers Weekly. I'm super excited to chat about this book today because I think it's so phenomenal to be able to look past through history and see that this isn't a new age experience. This isn't something that's just come up in the past few years and, and been a fad or popular, which some people feel, but this is something that, that has spanned generations and cultures for as long as we can tell. In addition, he's also the blogger and founder of the award-winning blog, I'm Here, I'm Queer, and What the Hell Do I Read? with over 3.1 million viewers. You guys can find this at www.lewin.org, which will also Also, be noted in the show notes below. Lee, welcome to the Empower to Heal podcast. I'm so honored to get to speak with you today.
1: Thanks so much, Dina. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's really exciting for me to be able to sit in front of you and have this conversation because you have poured years and years and years of your life into creating these books and this blog Safe Space for youth and teens to realize they're not alone and they never have been. Like they've not, even if they feel lonely in their, their deepest, darkest moments, if you even spend through the book that you've put together for history, this love is love and it's been love forever.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was, it, it. I grew up thinking I was the only guy who liked, liked other guys in the history of the world and I felt so isolated. I didn't have the internet. And I think for kids today that that have the internet, they it, it would be hard to know that you were the only guy that like liked other guys, or girl that like liked other girls, or the only person that 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 felt that they didn't fit fit into the two gender boxes that our society tells us that everybody's supposed to fit into. But I think that there's been this sort of straightwashing of history that this this idea that like um, that we have men who love men and women who loved women and people who love without regard to gender and then people who lived outside gender boundaries spanning back thousands and thousands of years and, and it's just there's been this concerted effort made by the people in power to sort of rob us of that history and the crazy thing is is that it's not just our stories of the queer community like if we can bring down that sort of the false facade of history it kind of opens up the history for everybody Mm. that there are the stories of women and poor people and people of color and disabled people um, and indigenous people. Like there are all these other stories that have also not been told. And so I get very excited about that fact because it's like once, once we bring down that false facade of history, then all this rainbow light starts spilling out and it illuminates everybody.
0: It so does. I was listening to, so on YouTube, you've posted your launch of this book that just launched two months ago, right? It's brand new into the it's world. Brand new. And you created a space where you did this. I thought it was beautiful, but it was like trivia. And I was watching that and I was floored by what you shared. I was like, oh my God, I cannot wait till my book arrives to so like dig into all of the trivia. I'm like, King James, really? Like, there's, there's so much in there that you just can't believe. Like, like you said, no way they were gay. No way they were gay. And to really understand that, like, you guys, the the whitewashing, the 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 depiction of biases throughout our history, throughout our our Bible, right? If you even think of of, of the Bible, the King James version of the Bible, something that we we, I, I, I mean myself growing up have used throughout our life in everyday life to understand that that is not a tool to use or discriminate against any one population. King James himself, right? Expressed his love for a man. (laughs) That
1: was astonishing. I was just completely blown away. And it's funny that you say like, yeah, throughout researching this, I just kept saying, no way no way they were gay what and then eventually I was like you know that would be a pretty good title for the book
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's the perfect title and it resonates so deeply because I feel like every trivia question that popped I was like nah No way, that cannot be true.
1: (laughs) Well, actually, the trivia questions went so well in the book launch that I put together, you know, those BuzzFeed quizzes that are sort of like, um, you know, which Disney princess castle would you live in? Yes. You know, they have a bunch of fun questions or like, you know, what's your, are your colors fall, winter, spring, or summer? (laughs) So I put together one of those quizzes um, and it's perfect for Pride Month. It's like, you know, answer these nine uh, queer history questions to discover your pride colors. and it kind of riffs off of the trivia and it gives people a taste. So um, maybe we can put that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. The link is, because it's really fun. It's a fast, you know, nine questions and it does give people this amazing, surprising thing that like some of this queer history is like right in front of our faces and we have no idea. Like, like okay, the Statue of David by Michelangelo, right? Like, so all right so everybody knows Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling carved the famous David statue and and he was in his 20s and he spent three years carving this statue of David that was basically his you know expression of male beauty and um and we know that he was a man that loved other men because we have primary source evidence we have this amazing you know love poem he wrote to Tommaso de Cavalieri, and Um, And even though, like, I think it was a few decades after Michelangelo died that one of his relatives changed the pronouns in the poem to make it seem like he had written it to a a woman. Um, And then it took hundreds of years for us to kind of get it restored to the original way it was told. Um, So back to David, so Michelangelo carved a secret into the Statue of David, and it's So you have to imagine, so I I was lucky enough to actually go to Italy um, and I went to see the statue of David and it's in this museum in Florence and I am six foot four, I'm really tall. And the statue is on this pedestal and the pedestal is above my head. So Mm. his, David's feet are above, are are over six or like over seven feet tall. And then the statue itself is really big. It's like 11 or 14 feet tall. So his eyes, the statue's eyes are so far up. But if you look really carefully, they, now that we have these digital photographs and stuff, um, in the gift shop, there was a close-up of David's eyes and you could see that the pupils are carved as hearts. And That's I incredible. just was like, oh my gosh, it's like the secret love moment, you know, like, and and it's there in full sight, but nobody sees it. And so we all just, you know, oh yeah, beautiful, beautiful guy, you know, like, yeah, Michelangelo, straight history. Like, wait, no, hold on. <laughs> but I, so those surprises in history, I mean, actually that's funny because really the unifying theme of the book is me being surprised mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was like, what that's incredible that's so cool i got and and i I wish like if i had had a time machine and could go back and give this book to my 11 year old self or my 15 year old self it would have made such a difference just to know that like wow i'm not alone Mm. and so that's that's the whole thing about paying it forward and having the blog and having the book and doing the trivia quiz it's just like hey we have this amazing legacy and we should reclaim it
0: And I love the intention you've put in your research around it. So no way they were gay is like filled with research. It's filled with actual facts that you have dug up throughout history to put together so that we can see the reality, right? Not what's I think of like when I was in social studies, right? Growing up and history class, everything that we we learned was very biased, right? It's biased in, in, for America, number one. It is biased for white men, number two, right? Like there's, everything is really just organized in this way that that it tries to emulate power and to be able to have something that's not filled with things that have been changed over time, like changing pronouns that's to me is is such an honorable beauty to be able to to touch and see and experience
1: yeah thank you because you know i think everyone wants to play csi history yeah. like when when you mention like abraham lincoln and being in love with joshua fry speed people are so offended by it and they're like well well show me the proof that they had you know that they did the nasty I'm like, well, wait, hold on. Like, first of all, it doesn't even really matter what they did physically, like how they express their intimacy, how they express their love. If we look at the primary source materials, if we look at the letters that exist um, that have been published in multiple places between Abraham and Joshua, that Abraham writing Joshua, like it's there. And Mm. I mean, I try, I'm not out to convince the world that I'm right and they're wrong about history. I just feel, because honestly, that would be a fool's errand, right? Like I would be exhausted and Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't control what anyone else thinks or feels, but I can shine a light. And that's been my goal. Like, I want to shine a light on this incredible history. Let's look at the primary source materials together. And then let me share my interpretation because there are literally thousands of books that have shared this sort of straight washed, you know, um, false facade of history interpretation of the letters or of Lincoln. And, and I, like there should be more, there should be at least one book and now there isn't, but there should be, there should be a few opportunities because so much of history is cherry picked. And, you know, it's interesting when I did the chapter on Sappho um, in my research and Sappho was a famous poet from 2000 some years ago, um, she lived on the island of Lesbos, which is where we get the word lesbian. Like she was really famous for being an amazing poet and also for loving other women. And when I was doing the research, I came upon a poem where Sappho's sort of talking about her love for a young man. And at first I was like, oh my gosh, this is like what? Like, but then when I, you know, and I was like, should I include it in the book or shouldn't I? And I was like, no, no I have to include it because I don't want to be that kind of person that hides pieces of history. Like that's the mm. whole point of the book is that all this history has been hidden. So what I did is I included it, but then I also included that, you know, what Dr. Christine Downing had said in her book um, uh, about the poems and talking about how most of the surviving poems show us that Sappho's primary focus of of emotional um, love was other women. And, but it, people, it's okay for people in history to have been complex. Actually, if we trust kids that history can be complex, they'll feel better about being complex people Mm -hmm. than themselves, right? Oh my
0: God, yes. Thank you for saying that. I think, I think we try to put everything in a box to understand it as human beings and just like make sense of it. But to know, in in my mind, love is love, right? I I love people in my life who who are dear to my heart, who have loved despite whatever gender identification or way. Like it doesn't matter to them, right? Love is love, and the connection they feel with another human being is what matters. And I I I. I like that you termed that as complex because it's complex to to the outsiders, but it is just fundamental and rudimentary to people who understand that love is love, right? It's just it's just simple.
1: <laughs> I actually um, yeah, and 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 it's interesting too that we've inherited this this thing in our culture that we all believe that love is the most powerful the most beautiful thing in the universe, right? Like, look at how all the fairy tales end, right? Like what, what it's the kiss of true love that breaks the evil spell, right? Like all those Disney movies, like we all believe all those Hallmark cards. We all have this shared cultural belief that the most powerful thing in the world is love. The most beautiful thing in the world is love. And we're pretty, we're, there's a pretty good broad consensus about it. What we don't know is that we believe this because of Sappho Mm -hmm. because at, when Sappho was writing, uh, everybody else was saying that the most beautiful thing in the world was an expression of sort of masculine power. Um, they were saying it because most of the poets, uh, most of the famous poets at that time were, were men. And, and when I say poet, you got to think of like a rock star, right? Like they were the rock stars of their time. They didn't sit and write it down. Um, they sang their poems and they accompanied themselves on on an instrument called L-Y-R r-e somebody at some point is going to have to tell me how to pronounce that <laughs> um and uh and so you know and then the poems were were, were memorized and, and shared and then later they were written down so um at that time everyone said that the most important thing was like a fleet of warships or an army marching or a bunch of men on horseback like guess a cavalry like those were the things that poets idolized right that, those were the things that were talked about and Sappho wrote this poem and, and we because she was a woman that loved another woman, there was uh, hundreds of years of, of um, well, centuries and 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 millennia of trying to erase uh, her her the existing proof of her work. So we know that there were like about seven thousand lines of poetry, and we only have about 800 that have survived. but among those that have survived, there is an almost intact poem where Sappho talks about how she knows that the most beautiful thing in the world isn't that fleet of warships or um, the army marching or the cavalry. She knows that it is whoever you love, because she would rather see the face of the woman she loved, victoria flashing radiant than all the force of Lydian chariots and their infantry in full display of arms. And it's, and she uses this um as her proof, right? Like she had this thesis, and her proof was the the famous Trojan War, which was ancient even in Sappho's time. And you know, everybody had always blamed Helen. Uh, who was married at arranged marriage to this guy, King Menelaus and Helen meets this young Prince whose name is Paris and runs back to Troy with Paris, leaving her husband and child and parents. And everybody blamed Helen, right? Like this was the famous, the face that launched a thousand ships. Like everybody said, Oh, that's that woman was to blame for this 10 year tragedy, this war. But Sappho in this poem recasts Helen as the hero. Because Helen left this loveless marriage, this arranged marriage, and she followed her heart. And and that's sort of the proof that Sappho uses. And this poem that Sappho uh, composed captured the hearts and minds of people. And it kind of came down through the centuries. And that's why... The kiss of true love is what wakes sleeping beauty from the evil spell. That's why we all believe in the power of love. It's because Sappho was in love with Anactoria and we've we've lost that connection, but the legacy of that is with us today.
0: Wow. My mind is blown right now. Like <laughs> completely blown. To be able to trace it back in history to that degree and see that she's the foundational like shift in perspective for people around seeing love as the strongest, most powerful, beautiful thing. Like, I don't think I've ever thought about where the idolization and the the energy and the, just the foundational connection to love started.
1: Yeah. And I want to give credit to Dr. Christine Downing. She said this in her amazing book, Myths and Mysteries of Same-Sex Love. Um, I'm reading a lot of adult books and then trying to Distill it down to language that an 11 year old could actually get stuff from. Um, I, it's it's like a joke, right? Like um, sometimes people are like, you know, are you are you like discovering? Are you like an explorer? Are you you know? I, I'm not I'm not going anywhere but the library, really. Like <laughs> like the internet and the library. Um, but but there is a trail that you can follow, and it's amazing. Like I read an article <clears throat> in the New York Times about a book about Gandhi being banned. And I was like, what? And they were talking about how the book mentioned that Gandhi, the soulmate of Gandhi's life was actually this guy, uh, not his wife, Kasturba, who he married at 13, but this um, this guy, Hermann Kallenbach, this German-Jewish architect that lived in South Africa. And I was like, what? So I I read the article and then I got the book. And then I'm reading the book and it's like two pages and it's a dis- discussion about the, his relationship with Herman Kallenbach and, and indeed Joseph Lelyveld, in this, you know, this Pulitzer Prize winning author that did this biography called Great Soul. Um, he, indeed, he you know, he talks about Herman being the, the soulmate of Gandhi's life. And then I was like, where is he getting this? And then I went to the footnotes, right? The endnotes, and mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, they're the letters. And then on the internet, I found that all of Gandhi's letters and correspondence have been, they're in the public domain, they've been published and they're online for anybody to download and read. And so then I spent weeks reading hundreds of letters back and forth between Gandhi and Hermann Kallenbach. Oh my gosh. And most of them are the letters that Gandhi wrote Kallenbach um, uh, because Gandhi destroyed most of the letters that he received from Kallenbach. Um, Thinking it's sort of a little unclear. A lot of times, the destruction of of primary source evidence was done by the people themselves, um, either to protect the other person or to protect themselves, or done by family after they died. That was the case with um, Eleanor Roosevelt's letters to Lorena Hickok after Eleanor died. Lorena's and a and a mutual friend, they sat for hours and burned letter after letter after letter. Um, and the, the the reason that Lorena told. Uh, Eleanor's daughter was that Eleanor wasn't always so very discreet in her letters to Lorena about their love. So, um, but then, you know, you read the letters and there's a, there was a love contract between um, Mahatma Gandhi and Herman Kallenbach where they pledged uh, love to each other, such love as they, they imagine the world has never seen. I mean, it completely, I kept saying, my mind is blown. I can't <laughs> believe this. And then my husband was like, you know, saying your mind was blown feels kind of old fashioned. Maybe you want to come up with a better <laughs> way of saying it.
0: <laughs> well, then <laughs> call me old fashioned.
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean, but I, I, I felt that way constantly. And in fact, um, when I when I did a a post online about the the Michelangelo and, and the, uh, the Statue of David and the eyes, Um, somebody used the sort of exploding head emoji, the mind blown emoji. And I was like, oh yeah, it is kind of, it is, it is relevant today. It's not old fashioned. You can have your mind blown. It's totally cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's still with the times. Don't worry about that one you shared a little bit about like creating the research or using the research you found to create books that could be applicable for 11-year-olds to read can you share with us why that age group is so important to you where where does your heart tug with that
1: oh well um so in two ways um the, the, on a very personal level i remember being 11 years old and and going into the closet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I have an incredibly strong memory of the very moment, the very day, the very hour, the very minute that I realized I had to, I felt that I had to hide being attracted to other guys because I, if I didn't, I would lose my, my family. I would lose my being loved. I would lose everything. And it's such a strong, uh, memory and and i also then spent 14 years hiding my authentic self hiding who i was i didn't come out fully until 25. Mm. and that though i look back on those 14 years and it really motivates me to want to create a world where kids can be authentic right away and i know it's not safe for every kid to come out right away but at least to themselves i mean i didn't admit it to myself till i was 21 where i was like okay look dude you got to stop dating girls because you do not feel what you are (laughs) what you're what you're thinking you might someday feel and you have to be honest with yourself Mm -hmm. and then it was like look another four years before i was brave enough to tell my family i was so scared and i think that you know we look at the research and families that reject their children for for being queer those kids have such Difficult outcomes. So um, but we do know that there's this protective power of any adult that's a safe person in a child's life can change statistically, we like we know mm-hmm, this, like mm-hmm. can change the outcome for that child. Mm-hmm. So the more safe adults there are, the better off every kid can be. Mm-hmm. Right. So I feel like for us adults, it's like the challenge is well, how do we, how do we let them know we're safe people? Like, cause there's a difference between being an ally and being a bystander right like there's no such thing as a silent ally if you're silent then you're a bystander Mm -hmm. um so i always think like what can we do as adults to signal to young people that we're safe for them Mm -hmm. and i think there's a million ways we can do it but um one of the ways is just like something simple like putting your pronouns after your name on your Zoom account or Mm -hmm. um, on your email signature. And it kind of lets people know that, like, you understand that gender is not necessarily something you can know from someone's name or from what they look like, Um, that you want to respect people that may have pronouns that are different than what is expected, and that you accept and, and embrace and celebrate the fact that there's a place at the table for anyone of any gender mm. like that's a really small thing that we can all do um that i think can make a huge difference especially in this moment where trans people are being really targeted in this sort of very cynical organized way um with h- over a hundred anti-trans laws that have been introduced just in this year so i think that that's a really simple thing that y- you can do and then you know there's things like having books in the library that are, doesn't have to be mine, but it could be, but um, some books that include queer stories, and then some books that are like lighthouses, that are like, here's a queer book, and it's on display, and like, that actually makes a big impact, even for the kid that would never be brave enough to like, go and pick the book up. Trust me, they see it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They see everything.
0: I like that you're identifying simple messages that we can Easily do, right? Easily do in order to be that lighthouse or be that that safe space for somebody. I think that there can be a con, like a common misconception that you have to be, you have to present in a certain way. And let's talk a little bit about fear, right? Let's talk about. So I, I interviewed one of my dear friends, Joel, and he was sharing through his identity as a gay man. He's been battling this fear and the fear doesn't come from personal experiences. He doesn't have personal experiences to reinforce that fear that he has. But the narrative in his brain is like he's his worst enemy around it. And if you are standing up as an ally in the community for queer youth, queer people, then it could feel like, okay, is this vulnerable for me? Or is, am I going to get isolated by my own community by doing this? And the simple things that you're sharing kind of like bypass that fear. Like it doesn't take a huge like presence in order to change your pronouns on your signatures. It doesn't, that, that's the simple thing we can do that can kind of, it, it doesn't have to be overrun by a fear narrative.
1: Yeah, and there, there are picture books that you can get that are inclusive of, you know, two dad and two mom families. Um, there's a really famous picture book called Entango Makes Three, which is based on a true story of these two male penguins in the New York City Zoo. And there's an extra egg that is that they don't have penguins to sort of like sit on to, to hatch and so that they give it to... Um, this to this male gay male penguin couple and they do everything right and then they have a little baby and her name was tango and
0: oh my god that's so cute <laughs>
1: and and that book um even though it's the sweetest thing in the entire world, that book was uh, one of the top 10 most challenged books in America for for years and years and years because um I think there's this weird thing we have in our culture where we think that if we can we can protect, our children if we can l- prevent them from knowing about things mm. but actually that just puts our kids in danger it mm. makes our kids feel so isolated and so alone with their emotions with their mm. feelings with with the if, if they're queer with their authentic selves and uh you know and it and we see it with things like suicide too that like nobody wants to talk about suicide and it just it perpetuates it, it does. and mm-hmm. And we know all this and yet still it happens that people feel like adults oftentimes feel like not only do they want to prevent their own children from reading it, but then they want the book to be removed from libraries. Um, And when you look at those lists of like the top 10, which I believe the ALA publishes every year. Uh, the American Library Association, they say like what are the top 10 most challenged books across America and you know a challenge is a very formal thing where someone writes a complaint and and basically asks the, the library to remove the book from the collection. Um, it is unbelievably how many of those 10 the reasons given are you know um, there's it, it includes you know gay or lesbian or bi or trans um, characters or themes and I think part of this idea of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for an 11 year old is also language right like we we have this word homosexual that we use in our culture to describe gay people and i think it does us a real disservice because it makes everybody focus on sex right mm-hmm. homo sex you all mm-hmm. and we don't refer to straight people as heterosexuals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but when we do when we do this for the queer community, what it does is it makes um, everybody focus on the way that people have sex. And we are very hung up on sex in our culture. And um, we definitely don't wanna to talk to kids about sex. And so it makes it like, oh, well, if you talk about gay people, you're talking about sex. You know, of course you can't, you shouldn't talk to them until they're 18. And then mm-hmm. you end up with, with countries like Russia passing laws and, and, and states like Tennessee trying to pass laws. Where it's, it's illegal for anybody to say anything positive about queer people to kids. Um, literally, that's a law in Russia, and it's been a law that they've tried to pass in Tennessee a number of yeah. times. Um, but it's based on this misunderstanding or this 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 um, sort of horrible PR campaign by by the powers that want to um, hold back diversity and hold back queer people because if we we're thinking about love, you know, when, when I've been with my husband for 24 years and, you know, the love between me and him and our teenage daughter, that's the same love that holds everybody else's family together. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, love is love. Mm -hmm. So if we changed our mental model and instead of using the word homosexual, if the word was homoluvial, like, wow, what a different conversation we would be having.
0: I love that.
1: (laughs) I do too. I mean, it's a little bit of my mission. I don't know that we'll ever get it adopted, but like, come on, like homo-lovial history, homo rights, homo-lovial community. If we talked about love, everything would be so different. And I think that thinking about kids, love is a completely appropriate thing to talk to the youngest child about. We do it all the time. Mm-hmm. And also identity. There are all these people that are like, Oh, you can't know your identity. Like, really, you know, I mean, you can be questioning your identity, but I think a lot of that questioning is just because there's so many, the voices of society are so loud about what you're supposed to be and just getting, getting to a quiet place where you can actually figure out who you are and how you feel. But that internal sense of identity, it's not, none of this is a choice. Um, I saw a tweet the other day and it was, it was based on a review of my book online. And Um, It was like a response in the thread and and somebody was saying it it was well-intentioned. They were saying that, you know, they agree love is love, but why do we even need to, you know, talk about people being LGBTQ when it's just a choice that people can make and they should be able to make the choice. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that that, that, when you're queer, when you're a man, you know, a guy who likes another guy, you know, a guy who can fall in love with another guy, which is what gay means, or a woman that can fall in love with another woman, which is what lesbian means, or um, a person that can fall in love with somebody else, no matter their gender, which is what bi or or, or pan means, um, or when you're a person that, lives their life outside gender boundaries, like, or or believes that your internal sense of gender is different than what you're told you should be by society. Like, none of that is a choice. That is your internal authentic self. And what the choice is when you're queer is, are you going to be authentic about it? or are you gonna hide who you are? And much of that is mediated by how safe you feel, mm-hmm. which takes us back full circle to what can we adults do so kids feel safe? Mm-hmm. Both the kids in our family, the kids in our classrooms, the kids that we interact with in the world. And then even online, like how are we safe people? And what, mm-hmm. What's the, this podcast feels like a safe space because you've crafted it as such, mm-hmm. right? And that like the guests you have on your podcast, like. All these little, t- all these little things that for for um, teachers. The classroom is there. Is there a safe space sticker on the classroom that has a little rainbow on it? Like there are all these little things that we can do to let to to make our world a safer place.
0: I appreciate you talking about the psychological impact that if you don't feel safe to be your authentic self, that that can have, or existing in a world where. Everywhere you look, you can feel judged or you can see examples of things that do not relate to how you feel. And the psychological impact of that is extreme. Even if you look at the statistics around children who do or adolescents and children who do identify as queer in some whatever manner that looks, the statistics around suicide rates are astronom- astronomically high. I think it was like 1 in 4 or 1 in 5. You might know the statistic better than I do.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially for, um, you know, in terms of self-harm, when they were in, you know, when they were studying the National Center for Transgender Equality was saying that like 40% of transgender adults had reported making a suicide attempt. And I think it was like um, 92% of them attempted suicide before they were 25. Oh my gosh. Like, I know it's so horrible. And it's like, and yet part of that is because they feel, well, they feel like they're attacked. Which they are being attacked, and they don't feel safe. And, mm-hmm. and in many cases, they're not, they're not given a safe space to be mm-hmm. themselves. Um, but there's also this sense that they're like it's all brand new that you know, nobody was queer before this. And you know, you look back in history, and that that's the that's part of the cost we pay for, for buying into this sort of false facade of history. Mm-hmm. Like there was a pharaoh in Egypt. Two thousand six hundred years ago, the pharaoh had Hatshepsut, and over twenty-two years, Hatshepsut completely changed their presentation of gender. So um, they were the daughter of the pharaoh, and then they married their their brother or their half brother after their father died, um, and they and then their their husband brother. This was really common back then. They didn't really know about like, you know, you shouldn't marry your sister because <laughs> it's not, genetically it's not going to be good. They were all about like keeping the bloodline pure. So, um, and then when her husband died, uh, Hatshepsut was 16 years old and her, the next male in line for secession was her two-year-old nephew and you couldn't make a 2-year-old the you know the ruler of Egypt he was 2 mm-hmm. so at 16 years old Hatshepsut convinced all the ruling elite to let her rule as regent for the 2-year-old nephew and they let her do it which is astonishing, right? Like rather than changing to a different dynasty, they let her continue. And then she was so smart and so crafty. She was 16. She was so smart and so brilliant. And she worked the system of ruling Egypt. And then a few years in, she declared herself co-king, senior co-king, not queen, but king, senior co-king with her at this point, I think he was seven, uh, her nephew. And then, and as she became, so as she sort of called herself a king, the way she was portrayed in sculpture and in higher, in carvings in, in, started to shift. And she was portrayed more masculine and wearing men's clothes. And there are these amazing statues that you can actually see this progression from like being portrayed completely as a woman to being in this sort of in between masculine and feminine state, and then, Uh, Towards the end of their life, right, they ruled Egypt for 22 years. Um, They, Hatshepsut, she was portrayed completely as a guy. False beard, squared off shoulders, you know, um, like just, you know, strong jaw, like completely as a guy. And there are, um, it is amazing to see this progression. And in fact, um, one of the temples that Hatshepsut had built uh, during her reign Um, It was called the Temple of a Million Years. And there are statues of Achepsut as the goddess Osiris that you can see this shift. And so in Egyptian art, there was this really cool thing that, well, I don't know, cool thing, but interesting thing, that women uh, were portrayed with a particular color. Uh, The the pigment was yellow. And that was because, uh, you know, women, noble born women basically lived inside like they didn't get sunlight on them and and they were portrayed, you know, with the color yellow. Mm. That was very standard in Egyptian art at that time. Men who were out in the wide world, I know patriarchy, but, you know, they were portrayed with the color red. The skin tone was red. Mm. And so with Hatshepsut, you can actually see that the, on the both extremes, like the statues were yellow, the statues were red, but in between the statues were orange, oh my gosh. which was completely <laughs> unusual for Egyptian art. But, again, blew my mind. And I think about how amazing that must have been, how empowering that would be for a gender fluid young person today to know, like, oh my gosh, this Pharaoh, this person that ruled Egypt in Egypt was like the big time. Egypt was like, you know, the, the most amazing ancient, you know, country. Like, Wow, Hatshepsut ruled Egypt, and while they ruled, they changed their public expression of gender. Like, wow, how cool is that? And then, sadly, after Hatshepsut died, the the co-king, right, her nephew, who now was a young adult, um, went on a ten-year campaign to destroy all mention of Hatshepsut, uh, all all to destroy all all evidence that she had ruled uh, as uh, over him. And so there are actually these amazing. Uh, there's a photo in the book of a of, 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 of bas relief of Hatshepsut that had been chiseled out so carefully, just to remove Hatshepsut, that you could see it like a silhouette of the where Hatshepsut had been. Um, and they changed all the the carvings, and they destroyed the temp one of the temples that she had built. Wow! Um, but amazingly enough, you know, for 22 years she'd been so she'd had so much stuff built that that we her story did survive through history. Wow. So I, I just feel like knowing any of these things in history are so empowering. And it's like it opens up this whole world because if kids today know that there were people like them in history, then I believe that they they'll trust that there's a they deserve a place at the table today.
0: And these are people in history that made a difference. These are people in history that stood tall and proud and like made their mark on the world. Like that is just like, if they can do it, I can do it, right? Like that's that feeling that you get from hearing that
1: right. and 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 exactly, that. they can do it, I can do it. and if and if they can if if there are all these queer people in history that did all these incredible things, what can I do? Right? Like if you know that you have a place at the table today, the future is limitless, right? Yes. Like, you could do anything. And gosh, isn't that the gift we want to give every kid?
0: Yeah. It's interesting because if you even think of history that long ago, you don't think of it being super like progressive, right? And then you think of where we are today and we think that we are pretty progressive and you're like, okay, we don't have as many I, I mean, there's still a lot of barriers, but it's not as severe and as many as we've overcome from our history to kind of be able to push forward and move forward through. So like even having the resilience to say, okay, like I can do it. And the, the barriers that I face are quite different than the barriers that they face. And if they can do it, I can do it, right? Like we we've got, you can pump yourself up that way. When I hear you talk about it, Lee, I'm like, how do we... How do we get this book in the hands of everyone? How do we get this book in the school libraries? Like, how do we infiltrate the world to be able to see and have this? Because the history books you have to use don't include it, right? It's just not there.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's, it's like a one on one kind of thing. Like, read the book, you know, hand it to your school history teacher. You know, it's funny because while I was writing the book, my daughter was in. Uh, 10th grade history or English class and they did a, a unit on Shakespeare and and she came home really excited and she's like you know we're studying Shakespeare's sonnets and you know so for those who don't know William Shakespeare wrote 150 some love sonnets and 126 of them are to another guy and they are beautiful and they include some of the most famous language that we all know about Shakespeare but nobody has any idea that it were poems written to another guy mm. because again that pronoun game was played game that the trick and they changed the pronouns to make it seem like Shakespeare had written all the poems to a woman and it mm. took over a hundred years to for the poems to be restored as they originally were. And in fact, in this, we have, I have this book, it's like a thousand pages, it's called the Riverside Shakespeare. And it's like everything Shakespeare wrote and it has these essays in it. And the editor of the, of the sonnet section, and it was published in, I think 1970s, um, was like, well, we've restored the poems here to their original form, but don't be fooled. You know, the, the love that, you know, uh, Shakespeare expresses for another man is not similar to the homosexual love of today. And I was like, what? Really? Like, could you just shut up and let people read the poems? <laughs> and, and honestly, that's really what I tried to do. Like with the book, I try to like get out of the way, share the primary source material. And then, um, and I do, I, I really loved um, pop-up videos. Do you remember those um, mm-hmm. from VH1 <laughs> or whatever it was? So it's like, it'd be a video. And then like, you know, suddenly next to, you know, Janet Jackson, it would be a little pop-up thing. And it'd be like, Janet wrote this song. Well, blah, 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 blah. So In a similar way in the book, I tried to like include my little notes, but in a way that was fun, not like, um, you know, it's not history like medicine. Like I always thought history, it was like names and dates to memorize. And it was just, oh, I really never liked history in Mm -hmm. school. It never included anybody like me. I felt very isolated from it. And it was so boring and i was just like i don't want to write a boring history book i want to write a book that's like chocolate i want yes. to, like, my history book is like empowering chocolate so you know when it comes to the shakespeare poems like I, and and everything all the primary source materials it was really fun to sort of like layer in these cool things and like you know and people are like there's a lot of debate historians a lot of them are like well okay So he did write 126 of the love poems to another guy, but they're not necessarily autobiographical. Mm. And I'm like, okay, that is totally a cool, that is your interpretation. But Mm. I interpret it differently. I think Mm -hmm. they are completely autobiographical. And, you know, he talks really openly. It's on at 144, opening line, two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit, a woman colored ill. Could he be any more open about loving a guy <laughs> and loving a girl? Like you know, this guy was bi. Um, I I think it's incredibly clear from the historical record. But you know, you also have to take things in context, and it was not a cool thing to be a gay man in Elizabethan England. Like that was, you know, you'd be killed, and your all your property would be taken,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and, and so your 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 family would not. You know, it, it was it was like so detrimental and a lot of those anti-gay laws that were in england ended up coming to everywhere that england colonized right so America mm-hmm. um, in fact still in uh there are countries uh, in Africa there are countries in the um you know in the former uh sort of uh british empire that still have anti-gay laws on the books that are are from that era mm-hmm. and we're st- we're still, Fighting, those fights are still happening today. And yet you look back at Shakespeare and it's like, man, this is amazing. All these beautiful, beautiful poems. Sonnet 18, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. That was to another guy. Right? <laughs> like that's mind-blown, mind mind-blown mind, mind blown emoji.
0: Yes. I love the, just being able to think and disprove, honestly, for me, I hear a lot of people say like, this is just a fad. Like it's more and more kids are identifying this way because it's, it's the cool thing to do, or it's the thing. And no, people are starting to feel safe and it's not a fad. It's existed for as long as we can trace back to history, people feeling this way. And that to me is so, it's empowering. It's enlightening. Like there's this connection of like just because you're seeing it more in your life does not mean that it's a fad. It's meaning that people are waking up. People are feeling safer. People are, are stepping into who they are and they're taking that risk because more and more people are doing it and there's power in numbers, right? You feel the force of that. It's right. not a fad.
1: And each of us has such power. So, so going back to that 10th grade English class, so my daughter came home and she was like, we're doing the sonnets. And then the next day, like, you know, we did, you know, we did the sonnets, but he didn't mention any of it. And it turns out that they actually taught, he taught the sonnets and he mentioned the sonnets and they actually looked at one of the sonnets and it was it was a gay one. It was one of the ones written to another man. And the teacher never mentioned that Shakespeare wrote it to another man. I wonder if that teacher
0: even knew like that teacher's education is like scrubbed out of that too.
1: That was what was so crazy. So like we, um, and, and it was actually one of the, one of the sonnets in my book, um, that I used because it was such a clear, beautiful example of, and so amazing. So our daughter was really upset. So we went and talked to the school and we were like, you know, and, and it turns out the teacher did know it. He did know that Shakespeare wrote that sonnet and another 125 to another man. He just didn't think it was important enough to mention. And I thought, well, what a horrible what a horrible message to all those kids. I mean, that's almost worse, right? Like it's almost worse that he knew and decided that he was gonna withhold that information. But again, that goes back to that idea, like, like he didn't wanna rock the boat, like he didn't want parents upset that, their kids would find out that Shakespeare was a guy who loved loved another who loved mm-hmm. another guy in history um you know he didn't want to disturb that false facade of history but good gosh that is your job you're teaching the kids so we we had a big thing with the school and they ended up he ended up ap- he ended up telling the classroom um that like 2 weeks later like oh by the way um it wasn't a it wasn't a huge uh you know um I think it was a victory, but it maybe wasn't as like it wasn't as satisfying as like yeah. you know like let's actually teach a lesson on Shakespeare's sonnets and and the fact that they were written to another guy. But at least it was acknowledged, and that teacher learned that he can't do that. Yeah, and the administration learned. to teach they, the whole
0: truth. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and the administration learned that they're going to get called on it.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: like that was really kind of hard to do, and um, but you know, for those that are emboldened, you know, you can, you can send an email or you can speak with the teacher if it feels safe. And again, a lot of this is about like, what can you do and how can you feel safe? And, you know, there are allies in the schools, librarians by and large are amazing allies. And for younger kids, school nurses are amazing allies. The the school counselors can be allies, like, look, look for your allies. Like what are the other parents? And then I think maybe for me, the thing that I've learned over the, the most from doing all of this stuff and just living my life is that I'm, I'm gay and I'm like the G of LGBTQIA2+. Um, and my job is to be an ally to everybody else, to all those other letters. And then beyond everyone else in the queer community, my job is to be an ally to women and to people of color and to indigenous people and to disabled yes. people, to everybody that's been marginalized. Because honestly, like they're using the same tools to hold us all down. And if we can all support each other, we can change the world. And I think that those people, and that was another amazing thing that happened at our daughter's school, is that we teamed up with the Black Student Alliance and the um, Latino Student Alliance and the Asian Student Alliance and the the parent groups, all all the parents that were supporting the kids, the student groups, started supporting each other and we all started to go to each other's events and to support each other and cheer our kids on, whether it was, you know, kids from Pride Project or, you know, the GSA or um, kids from from all the other groups. And I think that's how you build community, right? Yes. And we all support each other and that way we make it safe because if if you're going, okay, my hero, my total hero from researching the book is Bayard Rustin, who is an openly gay black man in the civil rights movement. And he was the guy that taught Martin Luther King Jr. about nonviolent protest. And he... Organized the march on Washington, that famous March on Washington where where Martin Luther King Jr. does his I Have a Dream speech. Like Bayard organized that march. Like he was really involved in the civil rights movement, but he was completely sidelined because he was openly gay. Mm. But Bayard had this line, and this was like another like incredible moment from history where I went to college and I was still so closeted, I didn't even know my college had a gay student alliance. Like I just didn't even know it was there. I don't know if I would have gone because I was so afraid still to be my authentic self, but in doing the research of the book, I discovered that not only is Bayard this amazing guy who did all these incredible things, but that when I was in college in 1986, Bayard came to my college, to the university of Pennsylvania and spoke and to the gay student group. And I actually have a, um, a quote from him. Uh, in my book. And if you if you can allow me, I, w- I want to read yes, it. Yes, please. So he said, the job of the gay community is not to deal with extremists who would castrate us or put, an island, put us on an island and drop an H-bomb on us. The fact of the matter is there is a small percentage of people in America who understand the true nature of the homosexual community. There's another small percentage who will never understand us. Our job is not to get those people who dislike us to love us, nor is our aim in the civil rights movement to get prejudiced white people to love us. Our aim was to try to create the kind of America, legislatively, morally, and psychologically, such that even though some whites continued to hate us, they could not openly manifest that hate. That's our job today, to control the extent to which people can publicly manifest anti-gay sentiment. Mm,
0: there's so much wisdom in that. What?
1: I know, and it sounds like it was written yesterday, right? Like, like that's our job today, to 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 control people's ability to manifest racist you know, anti-Asian, anti-gay sentiment, like we need to get us back, well, I mean, forward. We need to move forward to the kind of America where if people are racist, they're doing it in the privacy of their own minds. Mm. Um, you know, if they're homophobic, they're doing it quietly in the mm. privacy of their own minds because they cannot, we, we got to get to a place where we they cannot publicly manifest their hate. Mm-hmm. And then Byard said something about that I thought was so brilliant. Like he was asked like, you know, do you have advice for other you know, black gay activists? And he said, I think the most important thing I have to say is that they should try to build coalitions of people for the elimination of all injustice. Because if we wanna do away with the injustice to gays, it will not be done because we get rid of the injustice to gays. It will be done because we are forwarding the effort for the elimination of injustice to all. Mm. And, we, and we will win the rights for gays or blacks or Hispanics or women within the context of whether we are fighting for all.
0: That's like standing ovation right there. Wow, mic drop.
1: (laughs) He was amazing. And I really think like, that's our, that's our journey, right? That's our goal. Like make our world safe for every young person, make it safe for every adult. Like let's, let's hold hands. Let's get together. I mean, you know, I know pandemic after the pandemic, let's all hold hands. We're all vaccinated. We're all standing together. But until then, until we can do that, let's be there for each other Mm -hmm. and let's, Help create that world that we want so badly for our kids, for them to be their authentic selves and for them to grow and blossom and become the amazing human beings that they can be.
0: Mm. Mm. That's a beautiful end note right there, Lee. Holy moly. I want to be able to, to have an action step for folks listening to this. Check out the show notes, check out the book, message your local libraries, request to get that book in the library so that you can get access to it and your community can get access to it easily. If you've got kids in school and you're connected to the teachers or the principal or somebody in the school, let's go talk to them. Let's put this in the hands of our youth because that's where our future lives. The youth are our future. They're the ones, if we can create the full picture, the full understanding, having to self- like assurance, self-confidence, showing up as yourself, you will produce what you need to in this world for the world to be better, right? It will It will happen. If we are authentically ourselves, we will blossom, right? <laughs> and Absolutely. the world will blossom. And so that's your action step listening to this, you guys. Go and check out his book, get it in the hands of as many people as possible so that we could spread this world and we can enlighten people on the real history.
1: Thank you so much, Tina. That was beautiful.
0: Thank you, Lee. I'm going to have all the links you guys need in the show notes. If you have any questions and you're going to have access to the blog where you can have access to messaging Lee, learning about his thoughts, seeing how things progress. And then can you also share with us, Lee, you got, you got another book that's about to come out here. And can you share with us just a little bit of that? So we have a teaser of what we can expect.
1: Sure. So in October, I have a picture book coming out um, called Red and Green and Blue and White. And it's based on a true story, inspired by a true story that happened in Montana in the 90s. And um, so red and green are the Christmas colors and blue and white are the Hanukkah colors. Mm. And in this town where every other house on the street was decorated for Christmas, there was one house that was decorated for Hanukkah.
0: Mm. And
1: um, that was Isaac's house. And um, somebody at night through a rock through the window of Isaac's house sort of knocking over their sort of decorative menorah um, and this hate crime really rocked Isaac's family you know like and 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 the community because you know Isaac had a cho- Isaac and his family had a choice like do they hide being Jewish or do they you know after the window is repaired that that day that the next day do they light their decorative menorah again? Do they put up the Hanukkah decorations again? Um, and then they, they decide they, they do, they did, they did light the, the decorative menorah, they did put up the decorations and across the street, Isaac's best friend, Teresa, who was watching, um, her house is decorated for Christmas, right? Um, and this is the true part that in a, in a moment of sort of like friendship and solidarity, Teresa draws a picture of a menorah and puts it up in her window um, facing the street, and she writes for Isaac,
0: oh, um, and and tears.
1: that, and that moment of, a, the, the double moment, like a child standing up for themselves, and a child standing up for someone they care about, mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and that really caught on and people really rallied in that community and they were like, you know what? We don't wanna be the kind of place where people don't feel safe to be themselves. We Mm -hmm. wanna be a place that really embraces this idea of America as a pluralist society of people of many different faiths. And so it kind of caught on and like their friends started doing it and and the school and the people were drawing menorah images and then the, the local paper published an editorial and a full page image of a menorah. And so over a three week period, this entire community started rising up in defense of this idea of like embracing diversity and 10,000 windows had the menorah up in them.
0: Oh my gosh. In
1: addition to the Christmas decorations, they had the menorah to say, not here, like in, in, this is where we celebrate everybody. And it was schools and it was libraries and it was places of businesses and it was homes. And when everybody stood up for this ideal of what community is, the haters back down. Mm. And it's the story of how in this one small town in Montana, love won.
0: Oh my goodness, I literally got chills when you said that the neighbor friend drew the menorah on her window. It's like, that's what you were just talking about in the quotes that you read. Like, can yeah. we can we stand together and quiet the ability for the hatred to be loud, right? Can we stand together and have that unity and that love be what's present?
1: <laughs> and And what I love so much about the story is that it's kids can do it now. They can stand up for themselves. They can stand up for someone they care about. They mm-hmm. can stand up for celebrating differences, and I think it's really empowering. Mm-hmm. So it it's it's not about queer history, but it is about us all standing up for each other. And you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism happening right now in our world. And you know, I think that uh, unfortunately it makes the book kind of timely, but. Um, It comes out in October. It's called Red and Green and Blue and White. Um, And I have to give a shout out that it was illustrated by um, uh, Paul Zielinski, who has done some amazing, I mean, he's won the Caldecott and gotten the Caldecott honor like three times. He's an incredible illustrator. So the illustrations are absolutely beautiful
0: oh my goodness I'm so excited to see it and so it's a picture book so is that for children then
1: it is yeah yeah it's it's absolutely for children again it's like these these are the things that we should be talking to kids about Mm
0: -hmm. absolutely that what that's what should be on the shelves in our kids bedrooms. like right there sounds great Lee, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence today. It was an honor to get to talk with you and share this time together. And I'm so excited for our audience here to come and discover all your beautiful work.
1: Thank you, Dina. I so appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for making this a safe space for me to share.
0: Oh, absolutely. Thank you so, so much for tuning in today. I hope you are feeling inspired and empowered in your own healing journey. I know that many of you listening might be reflecting on your own stories that you may feel called to share. If so, please reach out to me at dinat at empower to That's D-E-N-A-T at empower2heal.com. Or drop me a message through my Instagram handle at empower2heal. I would love to connect with you and learn about your journey so that we can hopefully continue to spread these powerful life lessons on empowering ourselves to heal. My contacts will also be linked in the show notes below so that you can easily find me. We are so eager to start a movement in showcasing the many ways we can heal. And you can be part of this movement too by capturing images and tagging them hashtag empower the number Two heal on Instagram. We look forward to seeing all the ways that you are empowered to heal. I love you, beautiful souls, and thank you so, so much. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and review.